0: ready yes cool
1: and hello hello and welcome to the katie helper show i'm your host katie helper and i'm joined by
0: hey what's up everybody it's gabe pacheco
1: how you doing gabe
0: i'm fantastic
1: you can hear the katie helper show on itunes and when you're on itunes you really should rate and review us very easy thing to do just write a little review give us some stars tell your friends about the show that's always a good idea share the love share your happiness share the antidepressive is the katie helper show
0: yeah the shows like paxil and zoloft
1: exactly yeah and you're going to see why we're coming full circle with that you can find me on twitter at katie helps that's letter k letter t h a l p s and gabe at gabe underscore pacheco
0: that's right that's right that's right sometimes i'm on twitter sometimes yeah
1: you're not as extremely online our guest today is Johan Hari, who is the author of two New York Times bestselling books. His first, Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs, is currently being adapted into a major Hollywood feature film and into a nonfiction documentary series. His most recent book, Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions, is being translated into 70 languages and has been praised by a very broad range of people from... Uh-oh, hillary clinton to we're probably going to take that out okay let's just say from elton john to naomi klein so uh we read his book it's really great we've actually we read both of his books because we had him on before to talk about chasing the scream
0: yeah he's kind of our our number one author i guess at this point
1: yeah i guess the
0: most influential author
1: yeah nate silver we've had him on um Naomi Klein. I haven't read he's anything top, by Nate Silver five. though. Yes, so. right. He's the he's definitely the number one author in in Gabe's world.
0: Yeah, in terms we've of had. the Katie Halper book
1: club. Yeah, exactly. Yeah,
0: he's had the most books on uh, on our mandatory reading list.
1: Uh, right, right, right. We've had him twice. Yeah, we will have had him twice. Yeah, I really like this book. Um, it's not directly about politics, but we don't have to be directly about Thank politics. Thank God, man. Yeah, refreshing, I know. because yes.
0: life is uh,
1: highway. Worse.
0: thank god man refreshing because life is uh transcends our horse race little uh electoral nonsense right where we worry about who's going to be elected every two years because at the end of the day incremental change isn't going to help us
1: Mm. gabe is is, uh defending the revolution right now
0: all i'm saying is that uh we're going to be underwater before anything changes right so if all we care about is uh voting electoral
1: stuff yeah yeah Um, but how do we do it without electoral stuff?
0: I don't know. I mean, that's why I'm trying to just enjoy the limited time (laughs) I have left.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Just get good at treading water, guys. Important skill. Good exercise, too.
0: Dude, invest in swim lessons and uh, boats.
1: Yeah.
0: Buy land in the middle of the country that's high up, (laughs) as far up above sea level as you can get.
1: Right uh we should do a live taping there to get familiar with the
0: uh yeah ambience. so uh hey anybody in the rocky mountains that wants to help yeah. us come out make it happen
1: yeah make it happen we'll give you like a survival talk like the like the uh flight attendants do when they point to all the exits and the oxygen masks and the lifeboats if things. anybody wants
0: to donate money to the katie helper show so that we can go take a survival boot camp just some <laughs> sort of week-long uh excursion <laughs> Into the deserts of Arizona or uh, and find out how people in bomb shelters live.
1: Right. We're going to have to have two weeks because we're going to have to get trained and then we're going to do the training. Yeah. So we've got
0: to turnkey everything that we learn.
1: Yeah, exactly. Give back. So uh, speaking of which, you guys can go to Patreon, patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, and you'll get bonus episodes. You get extended interviews. So, yeah, I really like this book by Johan Hari. Uh, Depression is a real thing. He's a very good writer. He's a journalist, too. He's not just a writer of books. It's true. You know, I, as a freelancer, I work at home a lot. Yeah. And I've been dog-sitting. And uh-huh. for my parents, with Bodie.
0: That's b- right. We see Bodie all over the IG. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. There's
0: lots of lots of, of that dog.
1: And ba- Bodie really likes Gabe. She'll just jump up next to him. Gabe isn't If, that... if
0: I'm there and it, the room needs to be quiet, yeah. she'll serenade me.
1: Yeah, exactly. Do you find... I mean, do you find her cute? I know you're not really into dogs, but... Or is she? Is it? Like I love m- all living things. Okay, cool. Crabs, scorpions.
0: Big fan of arthropods.
1: <laughs> you should have a, a, a pet scorpion. I could see that happening. Yeah. Right.
0: And a cool yes, uh, scorpion jacket. Uh, scorpions in jars. Yeah. Just
1: yes. You know what are really smart? By the way, Are octopus is octopus eye, octopuses. My octopi. dad won't octopi. Thank you. My dad won't eat them yeah or squids because they're kind of related to them but apparently they like escape from all these jars and tanks that they're in like they've done these studies where people go away on the weekends you know in a lab they'll go away on the weekends they're like cephalopod
0: el chapos they'll find their way out (laughs) they'll break out
1: yeah exactly but yeah so having a dog around is both social and antisocial it keeps me from going out as much Right, because yeah. I don't want to leave her alone. They are
0: an anchor. I mean, everybody I know who gets a pet, they're... they. Well, I guess Huffed. if you don't like connecting with other humans, you can say, I got to go home and walk and feed my dog. Right. But the other thing is, is it's just this like... It's an organic alarm clock. You have to wake up in the morning exactly. to take it out so it can take a dump outside. Yeah. You have to come home and you have to feed it.
1: Right. And and they do studies where... So Bodhi's a, a rescue. My parents got her. She's a Tibetan Lhasa Apso. And those were bred to be alarm dogs speaking of alarm clocks they were bred to be alarm dogs in monasteries so monks bred them and then they would make a would bark like crazy if they heard an intruder and the dogs outside the monastery would attack ferociously interesting interesting right and yesterday actually she's very um mischievous she i was in a CVS buying stuff and i looked down and she has a toy in her mouth and she's just waddling around the store and I didn't even know that she'd get it. She just grabbed it from somewhere, and then they um, damaged it out, which is when I guess they let they they didn't charge me for it, which was cute. I thought I didn't have to pay for it because they knew that I hadn't consented to buying it, that it was Bodhi's idea, right? And they didn't you know want to hold me fiscally responsible for it. Uh, so she had, now has a snowman that sings that makes that sings a song. And then she kind of lost interest in it. Like, she's very fickle. I feel like she's um, a player. Sure, yeah. sure.
0: So, yes.
1: She's a player. She puts her butt in, pe- in in dogs' faces. Yeah. You know, she's very playful. She's a player. But when humans look into their dog's eyes, when humans and dogs make eye contact, they release oxytocin, which is the bonding hormone. It's released.
0: Yeah, dogs are evolved to... Uh... Be our to, friends. Yeah, they are. And they have mirror neur- I don't know if they have mirror neurons. I'm making, th- who knows? They <laughs> we, just stare yeah. into people's eyes. They, they, but that's the thing. They make hard eye contact.
1: Yeah, Deep, they meaningful do. Meaningful eye Deep contact. Me- yeah, it's like a staring contest, but with love. Sure. And um, I feel it. I look at, my, at Bodhi and I feel the love. I really do. Yeah. It's yeah. like I'm much happier working at home with a dog than working alone. So it's this double-edged sword, if you will, because it keeps me more at home. But when I'm at home, I'm much happier having a dog around. It's like having a little friend, a cute friend who doesn't yeah. talk, who barks.
0: Yeah. And just, po- you know, pokes. You just know that there's something else living yeah. around you. We, yeah. we need some connection. Right. Exactly. To nature. Right. You know, that's why I have plants. Those are my children. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: They're not as vocal, but they are. Right. They, they know, do give you life. Right. They know their place. Yeah. They know their place. Yeah. Yeah.
0: They don't move. Right. They don't talk.
1: It's like Victorian children who should be seen, not heard.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I just, I also, I've, I do think uh, kids that uh, are, are trained to behave better yeah. actually have more opportunities. Yeah, of course. Because like, y- do you want to travel with a child that's going to whine and complain? Right.
1: So you leave them at home. Yeah.
0: But if a kid knows how to like just sit place. there yeah. and listen, right? they're going to, I'll, I would take them anywhere.
1: Like we'll let kids into our survival camp if they're well behaved. Sure. If they're not, they don't get to come, and then you know what that means: when the flooding happens, right? They're not prepared. So it's like it can be life saving. Yeah, really. To be well. Survival strategies. Yeah, survival well, strategies. Like, think
0: about back in the day: if you if you have a child in a hunter gatherer society, that kid can't be whining all the time because right. they're going to spook the uh, deer.
1: Bison. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah, it's true.
0: And then nobody eats.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so those kids just were phased out quickly, right. <laughs> abandoned. <laughs>
1: yeah, their whole tribe was probably phased out, right? Uh, yeah,
0: I mean, unless the tribe dis- well, knew what
1: to do with the kid.
0: Yeah, I think birth control w- happened after birth.
1: R- oh, yeah, well put. You know? It's like Republicans. You know, Republicans, like, don't care about the baby once it's born. You know what we should do is we should have my, psychi- my dad on, who's a psychiatrist, See how he, what he thinks about this book. What's
0: his, what's his bag?
1: Well, he's very into psychopharmacology. So and he loves
0: a uh, better living through uh, chemistry?
1: Yes, exactly. So, of course, as we'll discuss with Johan, uh, Johan pushes back on a lot of kind of uh, accepted ideas about psychopharmacology and depression. So uh, we should have my dad on. Let him refute all those points. Mm-hmm. And then we'll do another one where they're live and talking to each other
0: the great debate series the great debate
1: series yeah but johan it's not fair because he has a british accent so he already sounds smarter yeah it's a leg up I'm see sure that's your
0: internalized uh anglo Philia. imperial suppress uh, supremacy right it's cultural true. hegemony
1: yeah it's true um it's like eugenesis almost at the end of the day they sp- what about them the brits or eugenicists eugenicists oh i'm just saying it it, you know the um prior centering certain races of people like the brits saying that they sound smarter yeah it's this fine line slippery slope and sound dumber well bleep it out so people won't hear the group i'm saying that sounds dumber and i'm not talking about the aborigine i'm talking about the white ones okay so that's fair yeah but I have been watching a lot of Australian TV, by the way. Why? I don't know. I got really into it. I got into the show Rake, R-A-K-E. It's a great show. I highly recommend it. It's about a lawyer. I oh. think you'd like it, Gabe. Okay. And then I watched um, some mystery shows. They're all on Netflix. So I just I just put Australia in the search. Some are better than others. The Code is pretty good. Secret City is pretty good. Um, yeah, it makes me want to go to Australia. You haven't been, right? No. Um, okay, so let's bring on our guest.
0: Okay. Sounds good.
1: Yeah. Call, this so, welcome to the show, Johan. Welcome back to the show.
2: Hey, it's great to be with you, Katie.
1: Um, so, we're going to talk to you about uh, your book, Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions. Um, Which has gotten praise from Elton John, Naomi Klein, Glenn Greenwald, uh, Thomas Frank. We've had Thomas Frank on. Um, I love Thomas Frank. Isn't he great? We love him.
2: He's a joyful and wonderful person. Yes,
1: big fans of his. He's actually a repeat guest. You're a repeat guest and Thomas Frank's a repeat guest. So you're in very good company. Wow, that's cool. Thomas Frank said, depression and anxiety are the maladies of our time, but not for the reasons you think. An important diagnosis from one of the ablest journalists... uh, writing in the English language today that's quite uh pr- quite good praise
2: yeah I was well chuffed with that
1: yeah well chuffed what is it what did you say
2: well oh, uh, well chuffed yeah I've got to get into my uh sorry I've been back in Britain for oh, yeah, about, we're gonna have, uh, to have a, translator. a month and, exactly well chuffed is a, a British phrase meaning uh uh totally psyched would oh, be cool. the American how do you,
1: how do you spell it C
2: H U F F E D. Shuffed. Okay, got it. Um,
1: And by the way, when he says ableist, he doesn't mean ableist with an I S T. He means (laughs) ableist. Well, I am
2: vicious. I am viciously ableist, yeah, obviously. Yeah, so. exactly.
1: Especially against <laughs> no people. No ramps
0: anywhere.
2: Yeah.
1: So, stairs, exactly. stairs. to everything. You're anti-ramp. Exactly. You're rampophobic. Yeah, he was like,
2: he's like a a brilliant book from one of the most ableist, racist, yeah. and homophobic journalists yeah, exactly. in the world. Yeah,
1: One of the most bigoted uh, journalists. <laughs> yeah. in, in you got <laughs> Exactly. Can you tell uh, listeners why and how you decided to write about this topic?
2: Yeah, I guess there were these two kind of. Mysteries that were really hanging over me, um, and that I found really disturbing in some ways, and that I wanted to understand, get to the bottom of. So, the first is I'm 40 years old in a couple of days. Wow, you look young. Really? (laughs) um, uh, And almost every year that I've been alive, depression and anxiety have increased in the United States and across the Western world. And I wanted to understand why, why is this happening to us? This is one of many, many indicators of despair, obviously rising addiction, rising suicide. Why is this happening to us? Um, And I wanted to understand it for, uh, you know, a very personal reason. When I was a teenager, I had gone to my doctor and I'd explained that I had this, this feeling like pain was leaking out of me and I couldn't control it. I couldn't regulate it. I was very ashamed of it. And my doctor told me a story that I now realise was really oversimplified. My doctor said, uh, we know why people feel this way. Uh, some pe- There's a chemical called serotonin in people's brains. Some people are naturally lacking it. You're clearly one of them. All we need to do is give you these drugs and you're going to feel fine. And so I started to take a, an antidepressant called Paxil, Uh, And I felt significantly better for a little while. Um, And then the feeling of pain started to come back. So I went back to the doctor, I got given a higher dose. Again, I felt a bit better again, the feeling of pain started to come back. And I was really in this cycle of jacking up my dose until for 13 years, I was taking the maximum possible dose, at the end of which I was still depressed, like so many people around me. And I wanted to really understand what was going on. So I ended up going on this big journey all over the world. I wanted to sit with the leading experts in the world about what causes depression and anxiety and what solves them. And just people with very different perspectives from, you know, um, a, an Amish village in Indiana because uh, the Amish have very low levels of depression to a, a lab in Baltimore where they were giving people psychedelics to see if that would help them, to a city in Brazil that banned advertising to see if that would make people feel better. And and obviously I learned a huge amount of things, but the, the, the core of what I learned is that there's scientific evidence for nine causes, at least nine causes of depression and anxiety. Some of them are indeed biological. It's too simplistic to call any of them a chemical imbalance, but some of them are in our biology, but most of them are factors in the way we live. I would say they're factors uh, that have been massively supercharged by neoliberalism, and, and, and we can solve those factors. And the, the, the best solutions to this growing epidemic of depression and anxiety are ones that I saw being put into practice all over the world, which are ones that deal with the reasons why we're so depressed and anxious in the first place.
1: So talk more about, if you will, the connection between neoliberalism and depression.
2: I think this goes really deep and it speaks to many of the nine causes of depression and anxiety that I write about in in, in lost connections. But I guess I would start by saying everyone knows that they have natural physical needs, right? Obviously you need food, you need shelter, you need clean air. If I took those things away from you, you'd be in real trouble real fast, but there's equally strong evidence that all human beings have natural psychological needs. You need to feel you belong. You need to have meaning and purpose in your work and in your life. You need to feel that people see you and value you. You need to have a value system that guides you through life. And you you need to feel you have a future that makes sense to you. And our culture is good at lots of things. I love dentistry and gay marriage and Netflix, but but we have been getting less and less good at meeting these deep underlying psychological needs that people have. And it's not the only thing that's going on, but it's the key reason why this depression and anxiety crisis has been rising so, so much. And, and, and I think neoliberalism has, has um, affected many of these causes and driven up many of these causes. I can talk about how if you want. Yeah. So everyone yeah. knows that junk food has taken over our diets and made us physically sick, right? I'm sorry. I say this there, with yeah. no sense. <laughs> yeah, I had a real low point. I, I say this with no sense of superiority. For my entire twenties, I basically lived on junk food. I had a I had a real low point when uh on christmas eve uh 2007 i think it was i went to my local kfc Mm. and um i went in it was lunchtime and I, i said my order my regular order which is so disgusting i won't even repeat it and um the guy behind the counter said oh johan i'm really glad you're here and i was like I looked a bit puzzled. And he went behind the like friars and everything and he came back and he had a fucking massive Christmas card that the staff had bought me where they'd written to our best customer. Oh my gosh. And everyone had written like personal messages to me. Um, uh, and one of the reasons why my heart sank is I suddenly realized this, that wasn't even the fried chicken shop I went to the most. Oh. But But anyway, so we all know junk food has taken over our diets and made us physically sick. That junk food appeals to the part of us that needs nutrition, part of us that needs uh, sustenance, but, but it doesn't actually provide that. It kind of poisons us, in fact. There's equally strong evidence that something very similar has been happening with our values as we've kind of unleashed neoliberalism. So for thousands of years, philosophers have said, if you think life is about money and status and showing off, you're going to feel like shit, right? That's not an exact quote from Confucius, but that is the gist of what he said, right? But weirdly, nobody had scientifically studied this until an incredible man that I got to know who's at Knox College in Illinois called Professor Tim Kasser. And Professor Kasser has shown two incredibly important things. Firstly, the more you think life is about money and status and showing off, the more likely you are to become depressed and anxious by a really quite significant amount. But also he showed, equally importantly, as a culture, as a society, we have become much more driven by these external values, by these junk values. And this, this is a key part of what's going on. There's a little experiment, I think, that, that helps us to see the core of this. It was done actually slightly before Professor Cass' work. It's done in 1978. It's a very really simple little experiment. They took a bunch of five-year-old kids and they split them into two groups. And the first group was shown an advertisement for whatever was the equivalent of Dora the Explorer in 1978. In fact, they were showing two advertisements for a specific toy, right? Um, and the, um, the second group was shown no advertisements at all. Then they say to all the five-year-olds, Hey kids, you got a choice. Now you can either play with a nice boy who doesn't have the toy that was in the advertisement, mm. or you can play with ah, a nasty boy. Who's got the toy.
1: Interesting.
2: And this is the fascinating thing. The kids who had seen the adverts, advertisements chose overwhelmingly the nasty boy who had the toy, Right. the kids who did not have these, um, who'd not seen the advertisements, overwhelmingly chose the nice boy who didn't have the toy. And we, uh, the think mm, that's just two wow. adverts primed those kids to choose an inanimate lump of plastic over the possibility of meaning and connection and fun, right. right? Now, everyone listening to this show has seen more than two ads today, right? Whether you're just walking around in the United States, you are constantly being exposed right. to advertisements, right? We are, from the m- more, more 18-month-old children know what the mcdonald's m means than know their own last name no right? so we kidding, uh, yeah right? so, no no we are immersed from the moment we're born in a in a propaganda and value system that systematically misdirects us from the things that will make us feel good and happy and satisfied in life this is what professor kasser has shown um, every, and every in a way it's almost like a banal cliche to say to someone no one listening to your show will lie on their deathbed and think about all the things they bought Or all the likes they got on Instagram. They will think about moments of meaning and connection. But as Professor Casa puts it, we are immersed in a machinery that is designed to get us to neglect what is meaningful in life, right? Advertising is the extreme end of this system. It's the ultimate frenemy. Imagine an advertisement that said to you, you know, Katie, you look great today. You smell great. You're brilliant. You don't need anything more. You're fine just the way you are, right? From the Perspective of the ad industry, that would be like the worst ad ever, right? right. Because that, because that doesn't make you want to buy anything. It, it, the whole machinery is built around what are called invented wants, manufactured wants. So that's one example. Of, and Professor Cassar has shown in research he did with Professor Jill Twangy that um, as spending on um, GDP, as the proportion mm. of GDP spent on ads goes up, anxiety goes up right? For very obvious reasons. Now that's a good example. Now there's obviously, that's just a small part of one of the causes that I write about in Lost Connections, but that's a good illustration of how neoliberalism drives up anxiety and depression and then commodifies that anxiety and depression, tells people it's purely biological. Now there are real biological factors, it's important to stress, but right. it's purely biological and then in fact commodifies it even more, uses it as a way to sell people even more things, things which do give some people some relief, but are not solving the problem. Do you see what I mean? Yes.
1: And what was the most surprising thing for you when you were working on this book? Like, did you expect the neoliberalism uh, angle to come up or issue to come up?
2: I think, you know, for such a long time, I was very committed to this story that my depression was purely biological. Mm. And, for several reasons that I think a lot of people listening to your show will be will find attractive as well. I think partly because if it, I was told, well, if it's biological, then there's this simple solution, right. which is the antidepressant, chemical antidepressants, which did give me some relief, but didn't solve the problem. Um, I think also because we're we're told in this culture there's a choice: either it's biological, and therefore it's not your fault, and therefore it's uh, you know. Um, you should deserve sympathy or it's an individual responsibility. It's all on you. you got to pull yourself right. together, pull out yourself. And what was kind of, uh, took some time for me to adjust to was speaking to the leading experts in the world on this and realizing, oh, there's actually a third option, right? There is a real role. The bi- biology is real. It does play a factor. It can make you more sensitive to these things, although it never determines your fate. There is some individual responsibility, although, of course, that never means that you should be stigmatised. Right. But actually, the key reason why it's rising are these social factors. So I'll give you another example that's very related to neoliberalism. I notice lots of the people I know who are depressed and anxious, their depression and anxiety focuses around their work. So I started to look at how do people feel about their work? What's the what's the evidence around this? Um. Gall- um Gallup, the big opinion poll company, did a massive study of this in the United States. What they found is 13% of us, 1-3%, like their work most of the time. Wow. 63% of us are what they called uh, sleep working. You don't like it, you don't hate it, you just kind of tolerate it. And 24% of people fucking hate and fear their jobs, right? I was Mm. quite struck by that. You're almost twice as likely to hate your job as you are to like it. Um, And, you know, the vast majority of people, 87% of them don't actually really like the thing they're doing most of their waking lives. And this thing they don't really like is spreading over more and more of their lives the average person now answers their first work email at 7 43 a.m and answers their work e- last work email at 7:15 p.m wow. right so, so I something well could this be having some effect on our mental health so i started to look into this and i discovered a, an amazing man who i went to interview an australian social scientist called professor michael marmot who had discovered in the 1970s the key factor in how we work that makes us depressed it's not the only one but it's the key factor if you go to work tomorrow and you have low or no control over your work, Mm. you are much more likely to become depressed and anxious. I think this is related to what we were saying before about psychological needs, right? You need to feel you're good at things. You need to feel you have freedom. You need to feel that what you are doing day by day, hour by hour, means something. And when we have control over our work, we can construct meaning over it. When we don't have control, when you feel like a robot on a line, you can't construct meaning out of it. It becomes profoundly depressing and humiliating. And when I was learning about this, I, I at first, I misunderstood what Professor Marmot and the other scientists who've researched this were saying, right? I remember going and talking to him about this several times because at first I thought he was saying, okay, you've got this 13% of people who've got jobs they control. They're going to have nice lives. And then you've got everyone else who's condemned to the shit, right? And I thought, well, hang on a minute. What about my family, right? My my brother is an Uber driver. Mm-hmm. My, my, my sister is a nurse. My, my dad's job was to drive buses. My grandmother's job was to clean toilets. Are we saying that all these people are just condemned to misery? And Professor Marmot said to me, no johan you don't you're misunderstanding it's not the work that makes you depressed it's being controlled at work and it turns out there is a solution to that so uh, a solution that requires us to think beyond neoliberalism so in baltimore i went and met an amazing person called meredith keogh and meredith used to go to bed every sunday night just sick with anxiety right she had an office job she would tell you it wasn't the worst office job in the world she wasn't being bullied or harassed but it didn't have any meaning to her she was controlled and she couldn't bear the thought this was going to be the next 40 years of her life until she retired so one day with her husband Josh she did this quite bold thing and when I explain it your listeners going to think for a moment I'm saying you should do this and then they're going to think I can't do this and it's true most of us can't do this this helps us to understand a structural change we can make not just a personal choice so josh her husband had worked either he was a boyfriend at the time had worked in bike stores in baltimore since he was a teenager and as you can imagine that's it's obviously controlled work you don't have much say on it it's very insecure you don't even get vacation time unless your boss happens to give it to you uh, you've got very few rights at work and one day josh and his colleagues were sitting in the bike store and they just thought to themselves what does our boss actually do they they quite liked their boss he wasn't the worst kind of boss but they were like we seem to fix all the bikes and he seems to make all the money so they decided they were going to try an experiment something different so the place where they had worked before was a corporation right most people listening to your show sadly will work in corporations so the corporation is a very recent human invention it's modeled like an army everyone knows how it works you have a boss at the top he's like the commander of the army everyone below has to obey the boss and sometimes the boss will be benevolent and sometimes he'll be an asshole, but ultimately we all work to the person at the top, right? They decided they were going to set up a bike store of their own that worked on a different principle. It's called Baltimore Bicycle Works and it's a democratic cooperative. It's not a corporation. That means they don't have a boss. They take the decisions about the business together. Uh, In practice, they agree almost all the time, but they have a meeting once every couple of weeks where they discuss the things they want to do. Um, they share all the profits. They share out the good tasks and the shitty tasks so no one gets stuck with the, the shitty tasks. Um, they all have a say. They all feel they have agency in their work. And one of the things that was fascinating when I spent time at Baltimore Bicycle Works was how many of them talked about how they had been depressed and anxious in their previous place where they worked and were not depressed and anxious. Now, and it's important to say... It's not like they quit their jobs fixing bikes and went off to become like Beyonce's end singers or something. They fixed bikes before, they fix bikes now. What's the difference? Totally in line with Professor Marmot's findings. The difference is now they have control over their work. Imagine how many people you know who are depressed and anxious at the moment, who'd feel really differently if they knew that tomorrow they were going to a workplace that they controlled along with their colleagues, where if there was something they didn't like, They could discuss it with their colleagues and share out the bits they didn't like, where they had control and agency where they could use their creativity at work. That's a very different way of living. Now, there is no reason we should be structuring our society so we spend most of our time in institutions that make us feel like shit, right? That's a neoliberal idea. It's one that we've internalized very deeply, but there is a very different way of working. And democratic cooperatives, according to a big study at Cornell University, grow on average four times faster than corporations for obvious reasons right the workers are more committed to them they care more about it you've got everyone's brain on the task and um, this is not a kind of wildly unrealistic it's a big challenge to the structure of our society but it's it's something that um could happen uh in a realistic it's, it's certainly more realistic than gay marriage seemed 25 years ago this is one of the big structural changes that we can make there are lots of personal changes we can make that i talk about in lost connections as well but but that requires us to challenge neoliberal ideology, right?
1: Well, we love doing that on this show.
0: Yeah. <laughs> what, what are ways that uh, people could implement something like this in their, I guess, lives? I mean, because as an individual, I can right. see that, but collectively, how do you, how do people um, uh, integrate, like, change the structure of a business?
2: Well, I think what, the first thing we have to do. Is start to hear the signals that are all around us, right? Because at the moment, what we've been doing is the way we live, and it's not all due to neoliberalism. There's some things that are uh, kind of a right angle to neoliberalism, but and I don't want to be clear about that. But the 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 so many of the ways in which we live are making us feel really distressed. But what we've been doing up to now is pathologizing that signal, either insulting the signal, saying, oh, you're just weak, you know, you need to pull yourself together, or pathologizing the signal, saying it's a sign of kind of craziness or madness. So you have no control
1: or it's all your fault, one of those two.
2: Exactly. And there was one person who really helped me to think differently about this Um, and remind me to talk about some practical things, but in a sense, we need to shift our perspective before we can do the practical things. We have to be able to hear what's happening to us. And it was one person who really happened to think about this. So this guy called a South African psychiatrist, I went to interview called Professor Derek Summerfield. And um, he's a wonderful person. And Derek happened to be in Cambodia in 2001, when they first introduced uh, chemical antidepressants for people in that country. And the local doctors, the Cambodian doctors had never heard of these drugs. So they were like, what are they? And he explained, and they said to him, oh, we don't need antidepressants, we've already got antidepressants. And he said, what do you mean? He thought they were gonna talk about some kind of herbal remedy, like St. John's wort or ginkgo biloba or something. Instead, they told him a story. There was a farmer in their community who one day stood on a landmine and got his leg blown off. Uh, it was the lamb I left over, but obviously, by the American invasion of Southeast Asia. That would make me depressed. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. And and um, they gave him an artificial leg, and he went back to work in the rice fields. But apparently, it's very painful to work underwater when you've got an artificial limb. I'm guessing it was pretty traumatic for obvious reasons. The guy started to cry out all day. All day, didn't want to get out of bed. He developed classic depression. They said to Dr. Somerville, "Well, that's when we gave him an antidepressant." And Derek said, "What was it?" They explained that they went and sat with him. Hmm. They listened to him. They realized that his pain made sense, that it had causes in the environment. They figured if they bought him a cow, he could become a dairy farmer. He wouldn't be in this position that was fucking him up so much. So they bought him a cow. Within a couple of weeks, his crying stopped. Within a month, his depression was gone. They said to Derek, so you see, Doctor, that cow, That was an antidepressant Mm. that's what you mean right now if you've been raised to think about depression the way we have that sounds like a joke right i went to my doctor for an antidepressant he gave me a cow but but what those cambodian doctors knew intuitively and this by the way doesn't preclude chemical antidepressants which do have a role but what those cambodian doctors knew intuitively is what the leading medical body in the world the world health organization has been trying to tell us for years if you're depressed if you're anxious you're not crazy, you're not weak, you're not a machine with broken parts, you're a human being with unmet needs. And what you need is love and very practical support to get those needs met. Now you can see that's not a neoliberal way of thinking about it, right? They're not saying to that farmer, hey buddy, you gotta pull yourself together, you gotta to, got to get it together, right? That, that guy could not have bought a cow on his own right? What yeah. he needed was an excellent, so a big part of what I'm asking in Lost, in Lost Connections the last third of the book is really about, what is the cow for the things that are making us depressed and anxious? But in order to get to that, we have to see that this depression these deep signals of despair that are spreading across the culture, whether it's um, opioid addiction, depression, suicide, I would say voting for very extreme and despicable mm. political candidates, these are not irrational spasms, as terrible as they are, they are signals that something has gone terribly wrong with the society. And we've got to listen to those signals because they're telling us where the problem is.
1: So we can't just ignore them or pathologize them. Uh, we have to give people a cow, so to speak, well, uh, well, metaphorically. You to, when,
0: when, yeah. When metaphorically. you said that, it made me think about uh, get like, um, watching documentaries of, of prisoners who have little, like have a pet, like a, if they have a cat, they become less violent or uh if they have or um, what at old folks homes when uh they have the uh they have people bring puppies in for the yeah. uh, for the old people Therapy to dogs, for yeah. a little while and and it, it it does give them a connection to like animals and nature i mean this is very different than uh giving someone a cow in cambodia with one leg because that also gives them a, a another form of be of meaning and purpose and like a, a official livelihood
2: right yeah, I think you put that really well, Gabe. And I, so I wanted to look at the science of this, so of different solutions. And so one of the heroes of my book is a guy called Dr. Sam Everington, who's a doctor in East London, a poor part of East London where I'm from. Um, although sadly he was never my doctor. And 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 Sam was just a general practitioner and he was really uncomfortable because he had loads of people coming to him with depression and anxiety. And like me, he's not opposed to chemical antidepressants. He thinks they have some role, but he could see two things. Firstly, Most of the people he was giving the antidepressants to remained depressed. They weren't quite as bad as they were, but they remained depressed. And secondly, they were depressed for perfectly understandable reasons. One of the reasons, and this again is a challenge to the story neoliberalism tells us, one of the reasons is they were profoundly lonely, right? There has been an explosion of loneliness in the Western world. There's a study that asks Americans how many close friends do you have you could call on in a crisis? And when they started doing it years ago, the most common answer was five. Today, the most common answer, it's not the average, but the most common answer is none, right? In a recent study, half of uh, Americans asked how many people know you well? Half of all Americans said nobody, right? So you've had this explosion wow. in loneliness. The US is the absolute um, sharpest tip of the spear for this, but it's happened in Britain oh, and, trailbla- and Europe. are the
1: trailblazers
2: exactly loneliness yeah you're number one the pioneers exactly and 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 sam was looking at these depressed and anxious people and he thought you know i don't want to just carry on doing what i'm doing because this doesn't seem to be it's giving a little bit of relief but it's not solving the problem he decided to pioneer a different approach so one day a woman came to see him called lisa cunningham who i got to know pretty well and lisa had been shut away in her home with crippling depression and anxiety for seven years and sam said to lisa don't worry i'll carry on giving you these drugs i'm also going to prescribe something else i'm going to prescribe for you to take part in a group there was an area behind the doctor's surgery that was known as dog shit alley which mm. gives you a sense of what it was like it was just like scrubland where dogs would go and shit
1: and surgery is office it, right
2: oh yeah yeah suite of yeah offices yeah um where they said uh thank you for translating yeah, of course.
1: <laughs> instantaneous uh, interpretation
2: exactly um I'll tell you a funny story about that in a minute. But the uh the, the behind the behind the offices there was this just the scrubland. And um he said to Lisa, what I want you to do is come and turn out twice a week. I'm gonna come too, because I've had some anxiety. And with a group of other depressed and anxious people, we're gonna make something nice, right? The first time the group met, Lisa was literally physically sick with anxiety. Right? But they decided, these are inner city East London people like me, they didn't know anything about gardening. They decided they were going to learn gardening. They decided they were going to turn this this, this shitty alleyway into a beautiful garden. Um, so they started to read about it. They started to learn about it. They started to get their fingers in the soil. They started to learn the rhythms of the seasons. There's a lot of evidence exposure to the natural world is a really powerful antidepressant. But something even more important happened. They started to form a tribe They started to form a group. They started to care about each other. If one of them didn't turn up, they'd go and look for them. They'd go and find out what was going on. They'd find out why they were feeling down. They started to support each other and care about each other. The way Lisa put it to me, as the garden began to bloom, we began to bloom. There was a study in Norway of a very similar program, which is part of a growing body of evidence, that found it was more than twice as effective as chemical antidepressants. I think for an obvious reason, right? It was dealing with some of the reasons why they felt so shit in the first place. And and this is something I saw all over the world. The most effective strategies for dealing with depression and anxiety are the ones that deal with, um, with why we're so depressed and anxious, but think about the story neoliberalism tells us, right? Story, neoliberal economics is all based on the idea that every individual is a selfish economic maximizer, that your role in the economy and the society is to maximize your own economic utility and benefits that accrue to you, right? That's the story we tell. Um, And we've built a society designed for people like that. Uh, But human beings, Living like that doesn't meet our needs, right? In fact, you know, why are we, the leading expert in the world on loneliness, Professor John Cassioppo, when I interviewed him in Chicago said to me, you know, why why are we alive? Why do we exist? It's one of the key reasons is because is our ancestors on the savannas of Africa were really good at one thing. They weren't faster than the animals they took down a lot of the time. They weren't uh, bigger than the animals they took down a lot of the time. They were much better at banding together into tribes and cooperating, right? Just like bees evolved to need a hive, humans evolved to need a tribe. We are the first humans ever to tell a story about ourselves that we should disband our tribes and just maximize. I mean, an Ayn Randian human being would... If we had been a species of people following Ayn Rand's philosophy, we, you and I would not be right. having this conversation. We, we would have died exist. way back well, when, Well, I wish right? we
1: could have somehow, like, s- naturally selected an Ayn Randians out of it, so they'd been, <laughs> you know, purged.
2: But, you know, but Katie, they're fucking miserable, right. right? And actually, my response to Ayn Randians, it's tempting when you look at Randians to be angry, but actually, my response I tried to be kind of loving, right. because think about Ayn Rand herself, right? Ayn Rand Very. drove everyone away, yeah. Uh, she died alone, except for a man who she paid to be there. Oh my God! Now, if you believe wow. Ayn Rand's philosophy, that's a successful yeah, death, it's capitalism. right? I, I don't think even Ayn Rand, in her last moments, thought that was a good way to right. go, right? Right.
0: When her life flashed before her eyes.
1: Yeah. Exactly. With fantasies of Mil- uh, naked images of Milton Friedman.
2: Although you know, Ayn Rand said a line that I've always longed to say in my life, which is, um, "Have you ever read?" I'm going to get the line wrong because it's years since i read it, but um, you know Nathaniel Brandon, who was like her... So I, I'm going to get some of the details of this wrong, but um, obviously Ayn Rand attracted a kind of cult around her, as people know. And um, <clears throat> one of the people in this cult, one of the people she exalted to be how, like number two, was this guy who was much younger, than... he was like 30 years younger than her, I think. Not
0: Alan Greenspan.
2: Oh. No, no, no. Although Greenspan was friends with Nathaniel Brandon, so Nathaniel Brandon was this younger guy who basically she had an affair with for years mm. and years and years, and he was quite hot. I looked at pictures of him.
1: Wow.
2: Uh, and um, it must not
1: have been very superficial.
2: <laughs> eventually, it got to a point where, like, she was just so old that he was like, "Look, I can't have sex with oh you anymore." My and according to his memoir, which is one of the most unintentionally funny books ever written, she said to him something like. If you reject me sexually, you are rejecting the entire tradition of Western philosophy going back to Aristotle. That is
1: so funny. And
2: I've always longed to say that to a man. Yeah, right? you should try <laughs> it.
1: Yeah, no pressure. Obviously. You're just rejecting exactly. Western philosophy. I mean, feel exactly. feel free to un you know take the pillars out from our uh, entire civilization. Um, I thought you were going to say she was like woke, you know, like one of these right wing woke people who, uh, was going to say it was ageist of him or something.
2: Oh, right. No, no. no, Ayn Rand was not woke. I
1: know, but you know, every now and then you get these totally like right wing people who just weaponize identity politics and and sound woke for once in their life, which is kind of funny. Yeah, And that usually has to do when it's, uh, self-interest. But you know, when you, um, you mentioned the story we tell is self, you know, is that we're selfish, but of course the story we tell is that that's not selfishness right the people in other words the people who who defend neoliberalism would call that um what self resilience or self um sufficiency or um ruddy uh, rugged individualism right Grit. grit yeah I mean because that's one of the mm. dangerous things about it is that they they present what is actually kind of brutal selfishness as they whitewash it as something healthy. I think
2: I think that I think that's true, and it's a sign of how deep neoliberalism has gone in the culture that it really a huge number of um, uh, self help cliches are actually deeply poisonous mm. and neoliberal. So, for example, I'll give you a, uh, uh, an example about a year ago. Uh, someone I know, not someone I knew very well, but someone I knew died, and I looked at uh, the Facebook wall um, for uh, his, uh, his partner. And people I knew had, had put things like, um, one of the, one of the things that someone had put, and I'm sure they meant this genuinely as a gesture of kindness. It said something like the only person who can help you is you. Mm. Right. And I thought, what, a what revealing that it's literally the opposite of the truth. Right. Right, Uh, But, but, but think about even when people are down, what do we say to them? We say, be you, be yourself. And you know, there's this interesting this one called Brett Ford, who I interviewed, Dr. Brett Ford, she's a really fascinating person. Uh, she was at the University of Berkeley when I interviewed her. She's at Toronto now. Who did this research with her colleagues. And I think it goes to the very deep neoliberal story. She wouldn't put it this way, so I won't be clear right. about that. But the very deep neoliberal story in the culture. So they were doing this research. It's kind of simple. They wanted to figure out if you decided consciously and deliberately to try to spend more time making yourself happier Would you actually become happier so let's say you said i'm going to spend an hour a day trying to be happy right would would you actually become happier and they did this research in four countries uh, obviously with teams in the various places the united states taiwan russia and japan and what they found was in the united states if you try to make yourself happier consciously you do not become happier Hmm. but in the other countries Hmm. if you try to make yourself happier you do become happier and i was like they were like, what's what's going on? Well, how could this be? So they did more research, and, and what they discovered was, in the United States, if you try to make yourself happier, generally, of course there are exceptions, you do something for yourself, right? You buy something, you go shopping, you show off on Instagram, you treat yourself, you whatever it is. In the other countries, and of course there are exceptions there is too, but in, in general, if you try to make yourself happy, you did something for someone else. You did something for your friends, your family, your community. So we have an instinctively individualistic idea of what happiness right. is. They have an instinctively collective idea of what happiness is. And it turns out our vision of happiness just just doesn't work, right? It's that's just not who we are as a species. Right.
1: It's yeah.
0: A- uh, well, it makes me think of uh, you know my friends who are in uh, like AA and. Uh, any programs where you're also not only dealing with like alcoholism but self-esteem, this uh, concept that if you want self-esteem, you should do esteemable acts, mm. and uh, an esteemable act is typically something for someone else right. that uh, then builds up your a sense of um, uh, happiness with who you are, or rather contentment with who you are, which then the byproduct of that would be happiness. Right. So like this, an act of service can. Um, in fact, build you up and, and mitigate any sense of uh, like like loneliness or self-loathing.
1: Right. It seems like counterintuitive almost, right? But it it makes sense. It's like when you do for others, you're helping yourself. So people who are selfish and trying to make themselves happy or kind of um, commercial... Like, do, I'm going to go to
0: Disneyland by myself. Yeah,
1: exactly. Or and I'm going to buy Disneyland. myself <laughs> this nice dress or whatever, right? Yeah. Like, treat yourself like you're worth it. You know, all that stuff... We, it's actually ironically counterproductive. It's not selfish because you're not making yourself happier.
2: It poisons us. And, and I think I saw in practice, I think one of the most moving experiences I had in Lost Connections was following this story where I saw people's values change. So if it's okay, I'll tell you the story. It takes a bit of time, but I think it's really worth it. Um, in the summer of 2011, on a big anonymous housing project in Berlin, a woman put a sign in her window. She climbed out of her wheelchair to put it there. She lived on the ground floor and the sign said, I got a notice saying I'm gonna be evicted next Thursday. So on Wednesday night, I'm going to kill myself. Wow. Now, this is a big housing project, like, like a housing project in pretty much anywhere in the United States, where no one really knew each other, right? Big place. Um, and actually, this is a this neighborhood, it's called Cotty, was a very poor neighborhood for a long time, and it had a, basically three kinds of people lived there. They were either recent Muslim immigrants, like the woman who put this sign in a window, her name was um, uh, Nuria, um, Nuria Cengiz, uh, or um, uh, g- gay people, or um punk squatters hmm. right and as you can imagine these three groups would look at each other with a lot of incomprehension
1: right. It'd be a great dinner party though
2: Exactly. No one really knew anyone else. There was a lot of, you know, isolation, loneliness, and hostility. Mm. And people saw this sign in Nuria's window. No one knew her, hardly anyone knew her, but they started knocking on her door and they said, Hey, do you, do you need any help? And she was like, no, fuck you. I don't want any help. I'm going to kill myself. Shut the door in their faces. Mm. And people started talking outside her, her, her apartment. And they had this idea and um, there's a big thoroughfare that goes into the center of Berlin that runs through this housing project Kotti and one of them had the idea they'd actually been watching the um Arab Spring the uh, Tahrir Square protests on the TV it says you know if we just blocked the road on a Saturday and we you know uh protest and we will nur it out there'll probably be a bit of media They'll probably let her stay in her apartment. They might, and everyone was pissed off because everyone's rent was going mm. up. A lot of people were being evicted. They were like, maybe there'll be a bit of pressure to keep our rents down. So they decided to do it. They, they block the road on the Saturday. They go to Nuria. And she's, she's like, well, I'm going to kill myself anyway. I may as well let them fucking put me in the middle of the road. So she wow. sits there in the middle of the road. Uh, and the media did come. It's a little bit of a news story that day in Berlin. And then it gets to the end of the day and the police say, okay, you've, you've had your fun. Wow. Take it all down. And the people who lived in Cotti said, well, hang on a minute. You haven't told Nuria she gets to stay. Actually, we want a rent freeze for our whole housing project. So when we get those guarantees, then we'll take this down. But of course, they knew the minute they left the barricade, you know, the, the, the little thing they'd put in the road, the police would just tear it down anyway. So one of the women who lives there, one of my favourite people there, a woman called Tanya Gartner, um, said to everyone, okay, she had in her apartment a klaxon you know the things that make loud noises at soccer matches Mm. she went and got it and she said okay what we're going to do is we're going to draw up a timetable to man this barricade until we get these guarantees uh we'll take it in turns and if the police come to take it down let off this klaxon and we'll all come down from our Mm -hmm. apartments and stop them so people start signing up to man this barricade right and these are people who don't know each other and they you get these really weird pairings so um nuria chengiz who put the sign in her window who's a a, you know a very religious muslim in a full hijab gets paired with tanya who's a punk squatter who wears tiny mini skirts even in berlin winters Mm. right and and they got if i remember right they got the thursday night shift i think and they sat there through the night and the first few times they sit there they're like we have got nothing in common what are we going to talk about right they just look away awkwardly but as the nights went on, they started to talk and they discovered they had something incredibly powerful in common. um Nuria told Tanya something she, she'd never told anyone in Germany. So she had come to Berlin when she was 16 years old from a village in Turkey. Mm. Um, and her, she was met with her two young children. And she was meant to raise enough money to send back for her husband for him to come and join them. And after she'd been there for a year and a half she got word from home that her husband had died. She she'd always told people in in Germany that her husband had died of a heart attack actually sitting there in the cold in Cotti, she told Tanya the truth which is that he died of tuberculosis which was seen as a shameful disease uh, of poverty. Okay. Um, and right. that's when Tanya told Nuria something she didn't usually talk about. She had been thrown out by her middle class family when she was a teenager 15 in fact. She'd made her way to Cotty. she'd lived in a squat, a punk squat, um, and she got pregnant. They realised they had both been children with children of their own in this place they didn't understand. These pairings were happening all over Cotty. people who would never have got to know each other, who were very different getting to know and understand each other. And um, After... Uh, 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 it's interesting, um, directly opposite this, this this housing project. There's a gay club called uh, called Zudblock, which is run by a man I love called Rick Stein who... <laughs> Uh, to give you a sense of, it's a pretty hardcore gay club. To give you a sense of what it was like, um, the place he owned before was called Cafe Anal, um, ah, and nice. <laughs> I always thought you wouldn't want to get a sandwich from Cafe Anal. But the the yeah exactly. Um, and and when That's they'd smoozy. open this club, <laughs> <laughs> when they'd <laughs> open this club, as you can imagine, you know, it's an area with a lot of religious Muslims. They've been their windows have been smashed. There's been a lot of resistance. After the protest began. Zudblock gave their furniture to the protest. They started to give loads of free food and drinks. After a while, they said, "You know, you guys could have your have your meetings in our club if you like." And at right. first, even the like lefties, Cotty, were like, "Look, we're not going to get these very religious Muslims to come and have, you know, meetings underneath posters for Fisting Night. Right. Right? It's not going to happen." But it did start to happen. As one of the Muslim women there put it to me, we all realised we had to take these small steps to understand each other. After these protests had been going on for about a year, one day a guy turned up called Tung Kai, who's in his at the time was in his early 50s. And Tung Kai, when you meet him, it's clear he's got some kind of cognitive difficulties and he's got a bit of problem with his palate and he'd been living homeless, but he's got a, an amazing energy, he's really lovely, and he started offering to help out. And after he'd been there for two or three days, just everyone liked him. By this time, they had built a permanent structure in the middle of the street, right? Because a lot of people who work there are construction work, live there are construction workers. And they said to Tunkai, look, we don't want you to be homeless. You should come and live in this thing that we've built. We want you to be here. So he started living there, and he became a much-loved part of the kotti protest. And then one day after he'd been there for about nine months, the police came to inspect. They would do this every now and then. And um, Tung Kai doesn't like it when people argue, he thought they were arguing. So he went to hug Mm. one of the police officers, Mm. but they thought he was attacking them. So they arrested him. That was when it was discovered that Tung Kai had been shut away in, often in a, literally in a padded cell in a psychiatric hospital for 20 years. He had escaped one day. He'd lived on the streets for a few months and then he found his way to Cotti. So the police took him back to the psychiatric hospital, at which point the whole of the kotti protest turned itself into a kind of free Tunkai movement. They descend on this psychiatric hospital right at the other side of Berlin um, and they demand him back. And these psychiatrists are like, what is this? They've got these women in hijabs, these very camp gay men and these punks demanding the release of this person that they've had shut away for 20 years. They, they, they can't understand it. But I remember Uli Hartmann, one of the, the protesters saying to them, but he doesn't belong with you. You don't love him. Mm. We love him. He belongs with us. Anyway, many things happened at Cotti. They took a while, they got Tunkai back. He lives there well. now. <laughs> and they got they got a rent freeze for their entire housing project. They launched a referendum initiative to keep rents down across the city. It got the largest number of written signatures in the history of the city of Berlin. But I remember the last time I went to see Nuria the woman who began yeah. all this with the sign in her window, she said to me, look, I'm really glad I got to stay in my neighbourhood. I love it here. But I gained so much more than that. I was surrounded by these amazing people all along and, and I never knew. And I remember another another one of the Turkish-German women there, Neriman Manker, saying to me, you know, I grew up in, in a village in Turkey and when I grew up, I learned that what you call home is your whole village. Mm. And then I came to live in the Western world And I learned that here, what you're meant to call home is just your four walls. And she said, then this whole protest began and all these people and this whole place became her home. And she realized in some sense, in this culture, we are homeless, right? Uh, There's a a wonderful Bosnian writer, Alexander Heyman, who said, home is where people notice when you're not there and by that standard we are homeless in this culture a lot of us and to me in koti what i felt like i saw was a shift from that individualistic vision of happiness where people are shut away alone in their homes with their televisions to a collective vision of happiness and think about how unhappy these people were loads of them were really depressed N- nuria was about to kill herself Tonkai was shut away in a literal padded cell what these people needed on the whole, not in every case, but on the whole was not to be drugged. It was to be together and to have meaning and purpose. And I feel like this is just beneath the surface, everywhere, right? I love those people at Cotty, but in some sense they are not exceptional, right? This hunger is just beneath the surface for all of us. Does that make sense?
0: Yes. Yeah. So how do we monetize getting people to hang <laughs> exactly.
2: together?
0: <laughs> exactly, that's the,
2: that, that's the key question here.
0: Johan, is there an app is there an app? <laughs> Is there a disruptive tech uh, innovation?
1: You should work on that. But yo, what are you doing now for, uh, wh- how's your depression right now? Like, what's your regimen?
2: So I'm always careful when I answer this to, to stress. I am not saying... I did this dear reader and therefore you can too, for several reasons. Firstly, an individual person's experience is not worth very much, it's an anecdote. We need to look at the science. Secondly, I was in an incredibly privileged position, although I was from a working class background. By the time I was changing my life in the ways in line with the things I learned in the book, I had a huge amount of privilege. I could do that. One of my closest relatives is a struggling single mother who works every hour she can just to pay the rent and keep her kids in their home and the idea that i would say to her well hey i did this and you can't do would be a fucking insult right. to her so a big part of the book the bulk of the solutions are about how we can change our society to free up more people so they can make the changes they need to make so for example in canada in the 1970s there was an incredible experiment in a town called dauphin in manitoba in a universal basic income, where they gave very large numbers of people a guaranteed income. Um, and one of the key effects, according to the leading expert on this, Dr. Evelyn Forget, who I interviewed, is there was a really big fall in mental illness of all kinds, right? Uh, it tells you making people insecure, uh, financially insecure, makes them depressed and they're not crazy to become depressed in that situation and dealing with that anxiety uh, it, and that's one way of doing with it it's not the only one that we should be pursuing but it's a key one uh, reduces depression and anxiety and is indeed an antidepressant right um so in, in terms of my life I, I was really able to reorient my life a to pursue work that i find really meaningful but more importantly i think is that insight that comes from that the research brett ford did about how to make yourself happy you know it used to be not all the time i don't want to overstate it but a lot of the time when i was trying to make myself feel better when i felt that depression coming i would do something for myself right i would show off on the internet i would do something that was impressive i would earn more money whatever it was And I realize now that's almost like, do you know that that clip of Buster, I think it's Buster Keaton, where he's like sinking in quicksand and in order to get out of it, he reaches in to uh, to pull his legs out and of course sinks even faster. Uh, I, I think a lot of how we try to remedy depression in this culture is like that. So now when I feel myself starting to feel bad, one of the key things I do is do something for someone else, right? And I don't mean I'm not like Oprah, I can't turn up and give them a free car, but just turning up and being present with people and leaving your fucking phone at home and sitting and listening to them and looking into their eyes and hearing what they're saying and thinking about their lives with them and just having fun that, that, or just being present, that is by far, that's what people are starved of in this culture. And that is the most powerful thing you can give someone. So I try to, I'm not saying I don't still have bad days and I don't have bad weeks because I do, but my depression has really significantly reduced. And if we go right back to where we started, if I think about what my doctor told me, and I'm not criticising my doctor, this is the training they're given. And as a society, we've only given them one lever to pull. But what my doctor told me is this was just a biological problem. And all I needed to do was drug myself. And to me, the tragedy of telling people it's just a biological problem is it cuts them off. Well, firstly, it's not true. There's a real biological component, which is really important to talk about and that I write about in Lost Connections, but it's one part of a much bigger picture but also if you tell people an exclusively biological story, what can you do? All you can do is drug yourself and drug yourself more and more and more. Right. Um, yes. Which, which, you know, gives people some relief, but actually doesn't solve the problem. As we know from the best long-term researcher to chemical antidepressants, which is, it gives some relief, but most people do become depressed again. Um, and I think that, 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 this heavily biological story which has come to dominate psychiatry in the united states against the wishes of most good psychiatrists by the way um is really a disaster for the culture because then as individuals we can't interpret the signals that our own psyches are sending us and as a society and as a culture we can't understand what the signals we're receiving mean and are telling us um and, and, and that's a tragedy because it's only when you understand the problem that you can start to find solutions, right? And it's only if you have an accurate map of the territory that you can find your way out.
1: I think that's a really important thing that people have to listen to, even if they acknowledge that there's a biological, I mean, it, it's like, it's not either or, right? And I think both yeah, and, sides and can really, downplay yeah. the other one.
2: It's really important to stress. Um, I interviewed like a huge number of leading experts literally everyone agrees there's a significant biological component to right. depression anxiety and it's and i think it's worth talking a bit about what they are because they interact with these environmental and psychological components they're not separate they interact with them so if we think about for example genes everyone knows that some people can eat as much as they want and mm-hmm. stay skinny mm-hmm. i only have to eat one stickers bar and i start to put on weight right I know. Um, so we know that this there's whole chat a genetic- is making me so hungry <laughs> yeah so we know that there's a uh, some genetic component but of course that interacts with my environment so if i if i live in a place where the only food i can eat, buy is shitty food i'll put on weight right I Live in a course, place where right. the food available is really happy so you can see how the genes interact with the environment and the psychology if i'm really unhappy i'll eat more if i'm ha- if things are going well in my life i'll eat less right so we can see how those three things interact together There's same very similar with with depression so for example Professor Abshalon Caspi did one of the biggest pieces of research into the genetics of uh, depression in New Zealand. And what they found was there is a gene, it's called the H5TT gene, which interacts with, with um, which makes you more vulnerable to depression. But what they found was if you carry that gene, you are only more likely to become depressed if you go through a traumatic event or you become acutely lonely. If those things don't happen Mm. to you, you're no more likely to become depressed than somebody who doesn't have that gene, right? So again, you can see how these things interact. In a similar way, there are real things that happen, of course, that happen in your brain when you become depressed that can make it harder to get out. But again, those things, interact with the environment right you you, the, the, you as you become depressed because of these social factors your brain can in some circumstances change to make it harder to get out but there's an interaction that means if you get more love and more support you will find your way out um so it's important to understand how these things interact they're not separate right and i think some people when and I, well i say some people me when mm. i was learning this that can be, if you've been told a heavily biological story all your life, that can initially be really challenging, right? Partly because a lot of people think, well, I can't change these things, right? What, And this again is a victory of neoliberalism. You know, when I was a child, Margaret Thatcher said, there's no such thing as society, there's only individuals and their families. Right. And to me, it's such a sign of the victory of neoliberalism that, it's blinded us to the social causes of depression, right? Like if I think about me, I was acutely depressed for 13 years. I had studied the social sciences at Cambridge University. I knew a lot about these things. (laughs) It never even occurred to me that my depression had deep social causes, right? That's how deep neoliberalism is. It's dismantled the category of the social in our brains, right? So that when someone comes along and says, There are deep social factors here. What some people hear because we've so internalized neoliberalism is, hey, I'm saying it's your fault, you're weak, it's all on you, buddy, right? Which of course is the antithesis of what I'm saying. But I can understand why this is hard for people to hear because we've been, well, for many reasons, but one is that we've been so immersed in neoliberalism for so long that it becomes the kind of unspoken frame through which we see everything and social explanations just don't fit into that frame uh
0: interesting i i was uh curious as to how like we've been talking about neoliberalism a lot which is this you know large boogeyman uh how that interacts with both the um pharma like pharmaceutical industry and its role mm-hmm. in the, our how we sh- look at depression and, and how profit driven everything is how um medicine or our our sort of trust in doctors. And I'm not uh, here to say we shouldn't trust doctors, but the role, the very limited role that doctors have in our lives as healers.
2: Yeah, I think there's lots of things in what you're saying. I think, so some people say, um, the reason we've developed this distorted story about depression is all due to big pharma. And all of that, I don't think that's true. I think Big Pharma has played a role, and in a way it's kind of almost fatuous to point it out, but think about Lisa Cunningham, the woman who was acutely depressed in East London, who gets that help from Sam Everington to do gardening in a group, and it helps her and transforms her life, right? There is a $10 billion industry to tell Lisa she feels that way because there's a problem in her brain, And there is a $0 billion industry to tell her, you might want to try gardening with a group of people, right? right?" Now, that is partly why, I don't want to overstate this, I think there are lots of other things going on, but that is partly why we ended up with this very, very distorted picture. And there is evidence, very strong evidence that, well, evidence has been proven in court um, that, Uh, Big Pharma massively oversold the benefits of chemical antidepressants. They lied. They lied about all sorts of things. I go through some of these cases. That doesn't mean there's no value to chemical antidepressants. There is some value, but they massively overstated it uh, in in court. But I think it's, I think you have to see that as part of a picture. There's a complex relationship between what's called the biomedical theory of of, um, biomedical explanation for these forms of distress, which is the idea that it's primarily biological, and neoliberalism, which go hand in hand. So, uh, and this is somewhat oversimplifying it, but neoliberalism creates circumstances that increase distress. Neoliberalism creates an intellectual framework in which which that distress cannot be comprehended, because we can't think in social categories with neoliberalism. And the fact that living under this model makes us miserable is not something that neoliberalism could acknowledge, right? Just as it can't acknowledge the ecological and economic, um, the environmental destruction it causes. Um, And then you have this, and I don't want to suggest there's any conscious agency or conspiracy here, that absolutely is not. But at the same time, you have an explanation for that distress, which says, oh, it's just a biological problem, or overwhelmingly a biological problem. And by the way, if you understand it as, Overwhelmingly a biological problem. There's a new opportunity to make profit and hit a whole new $10 billion industry that will benefit the very forces that are causing this distress in the first place. I had a real awakening to this when I got invited, but you know, Peter Thiel, the monstrous, um, billionaire. So I got an invitation for Peter Thiel just before, just after Trump had won, I got an invitation for Peter Thiel to go and speak Ah, at a conference he was organizing in San Francisco, um, to design apps to deal with addiction depression and anxiety and i said to these oh, people who like gabe's idea yeah. i didn't know gabe yeah, was a
1: now we know you're a yeah. and,
2: and i said the very idea that apps can solve this problem is absurd right yeah and they said in that very californian way hey that's great why don't you come and tell us that so i was looking right. for an excuse to go to san francisco anyway so I, I i go to this this conference and it was absolutely it was and it was just before Donald Trump was inaugurated, uh, like like literally I think the day before, and it was absolutely fascinating because this, I, I was invited, my actual depression book had not yet come out, but I was, um, I'd was i written a book before about addiction which touched on some of the similar right. themes. And so I'm at this conference, right, and there are loads of really good scientists, right, really distinguished scientists, some people I really admire, like Thomas Ensor, the former head of NIH. And I'm sitting there wow, listening to out. every talk, so maybe there are people who, yeah, that maybe there were people I didn't, who said this, but I didn't hear, but what's fascinating is if, if you were at this conference and all you knew about depression, anxiety, and addiction was what they were saying, you would literally think they were problems exclusively inside the brain. All we did was look at pictures of brain scans, look at, you know, in passing, a couple of people mentioned childhood trauma, which is a big cause that I write about in the book. That was the only external reference point that anyone had outside the brain, right? And Mm. it's not that the science they were doing is not good, right? It is really important to understand the brain mechanisms that happen in depression. They do make it harder to get out. It's all true, but when I I spoke last, and I don't know if this was by design or not, I think Mm. it was coincidence, and I thought, what should I say to these people? And I went up, and I just said, you know, I talked about how weird I found this conference, and I said, you could explain the plot of Romeo and Juliet using Newtonian physics, right? And it would all be true. The atoms in Romeo's body move a certain way. The atoms in Juliet's body move a certain way. It, it would be true. It would be good science in a way. And You wouldn't understand a fucking reason why Romeo and Juliet did anything, right? It's just, <laughs> it, wouldn't, it would be in a similar way, looking exclusively at brain mechanisms in a society that's falling apart, that has just elected a fascist leader that is, you know, where half the people say no one knows them well, where there's been an explosion of people being controlled and humiliated at work, people thinking life is about money, says you're just profoundly misunderstanding what's going on around you. And I said, we were we were in um, San Francisco, as I said, and, and we were actually quite near the Tenderloin, which as a lot of people will know, is an area with a lot of people with um, very serious addiction problems. And I said to them, you know, let's not even discuss this. Let's just, all of us, go, walk over to the Tenderloin and sit with the first person we meet who's got an addiction problem, sit with them and listen to their life story, talk to them about their lives, and then you come back and tell me the main thing that's gone wrong here is a glitch in their amygdala. This is an insane way of talking about people's pain and distress. It's not that it's not true, but it's so reductive. But you can see why, how convenient for Peter Thiel, and again, I wanna be clear, I don't think Peter Thiel thinks this consciously. I don't think any of the people involved think this consciously. There is no conspiracy here. But how convenient to be the beneficiary of this extreme inequality that humiliates so much of the population, and then to respond to the distress caused in part by that humiliation and the extreme insecurity it causes in the population by saying, oh, how funny, what a coincidence all of them seemed to have brains that started to malfunction uh, around the same time, right. right? And I remember the next day I went to, there was a, um, I might be getting my day slightly mixed, it might have been a couple of days before the election, I can't remember the exact details, I've written about this, it's in there, but going to, there was a protest where people, as Trump was being inaugurated, we held hands across the Golden Gate Bridge, right? And I remember sitting there, and it was a little bit rainy that day, in San Francisco standing there on the golden gate bridge and holding hands with these two people i didn't know and looking out over you know the the, the san francisco and thinking this is a much more meaningful strategy for dealing with what's happening to us and the despair than what happened at that conference right that the that speaking in this reductively biological way It's not that it's bad science, right? These are really good scientists. They are right about what they're saying about the brain. What they're saying is important. We need to understand it but to talk about it in the absence professor john cassiopo the expert on loneliness i talked about said we need to think in terms of social neuroscience how we live changes our brains which in turn changes how we live there's a famous study that looks at london taxi drivers london taxi drivers have to pass an extremely difficult test where they memorize the map of london it's called the knowledge if you do um uh brain scans or london taxi drivers the part of the brain that relates to spatial awareness the hippocampus It's much bigger, it looks really different to how you and I, our brains would look, right? That doesn't mean being a London taxi driver is a brain disease, right? right? Your brain changes according to how you use it, just like your arms. If I start lifting loads of weights, my arms will get bigger. Doesn't mean I've got an arm disease, right? right. right? It means I'm using my body differently. We need to get out of these extremely reductive ways of talking about our pain, because it reduces our pain to one dimension where it cannot be dealt with and where we can't find solutions and we can't even see what it means.
1: Well, okay, so to wrap up, I have a few more questions to wrap up, ready? What is Neoliberalism? What is your favorite junk food? And um, can you relate that? Uh, st- was it what's the anecdote about Instagram and going to concerts? Was that I don't remember if it's in your book or in a podcast that I heard?
2: Sure. So uh, Naomi Klein says Instagram. Uh, Instagram. <laughs> right. Naomi Klein says Naomi Klein says neoliberalism is capitalism lying in its underwear on a bed, screaming, "What are you going to do? Leave me!" Nice. Um, which I think is a pretty good yeah. definition. But so neoliberalism is the idea that um, the society consists of individuals whose main purpose in life is to maximize their economic value and that the state's role is to facilitate that and strip away pretty much everything else. So what you have is a state that's job is to facilitate and regulate markets uh, and unleash them on the society and that that's that's how we should live together, Mm -hmm. right? And that other ways of us living together, like say, socialized medicine, are irrational obstacles to that rational self-maximization and to the market so that's the crudest way of okay. putting neoliberalism great right. yeah. um my favorite junk food used to be uh kfc bucket but uh so if that if ever a species evolves from chickens mm-hmm. uh with consciousness i will be remembered as their like hitler figure because right. um i ate so many of them but um it's now i don't eat junk food as much as i used to but i have occasional relapses i suppose it would be it would probably be uh Big Mac, but mm. my young my youngest nephew recently discovered. So I was telling my nephew something recently that um, I, we were in McDonald's and I I remembered um, one of the perhaps the saddest moment of my entire life, which was they I don't know if you I don't know if they, you guys remember this, but do you remember the McPizza that happened mm-hmm. in the nineties? No. Yeah. So in the nineties, there was um, the McPizza was released for like six months, and it was completely incredible. And I remember going into a branch of McDonald's. And ordering them a McPizza, and the woman said, Oh, you, you can't have them. We don't have them. And I what? said, Well, when, when will you have them back? And she said, Never the McPizza has been discontinued. Whoa. And I, in my mind, this must be a good place. I remember just like sinking to my knees, like everyone going, No. Right. But I told my nephew this, and he was like devastated that he'll never, I said, Ben, you'll never know what a McPizza was like and he did a load of searching online and there is one place left in Pennsylvania <gasps> that still does the McPizza Gabe, so we're gonna yeah. go on a fucking pilgrimage yeah um let's yeah. meet
1: let's all meet there
2: exactly but what right. was the um oh what was the last um,
1: just the, the anecdote about the Instagram concert thing
2: Well, I wanted to look at whether um, social media causes depression and anxiety. So I went to the first ever internet rehab center in the United States and I can, uh, that's all in the book, but we've gotten into this state where there was a real crisis in being present, right? And actually had a, so an obvious example is every time you go to a music concert, now like I was recently in Vegas on the last night that Elton Elton John's ever resident, last night, he'd ever do a residency in in, um, Caesars. And like half the audience is just filming it the whole time and watching it through a fucking screen. Right. And you want to scream at them, put your phone down. You'll never see this again. No one wants to see your fucking shitty grainy right. video of Elton John have the experience. But I had a real, uh, horrendous experience like that when I, the same nephew actually is a big fan of Elvis. Mm. So I decided to take him to Graceland last year. So we went and, um, when now, when you arrive in Graceland, there isn't a person to show you around. There's a, they give you an iPad and you put in headphones and the iPad shows you around. Right. Wow. So we're going, we show around this iPad and it says, you know, you're in, you know, the jungle room, go left or whatever, but each room you're in, there's a representation of that room on the iPad in front of you. And at one point we were in the jungle room and everyone is just staring at the iPad and a guy turns to his wife and says, Hey honey, this is amazing. If you swipe left, you can see the jungle room to the left. And if you swipe right, you can see the jungle room to the right. And I kind of laughed and looked at him and I realized he was being serious. And I said to him, but hey, sir, there's a there's an old fashioned form of swiping you can do called turning your head because right. we are in fact in that room. And he just looked puzzled and went back to looking at the screen. And I thought we fucking lost it. We can't yeah. look at the thing that's right in front of us. It's over. It's over, yeah. The,
1: the one. <laughs> I'll just say in, over, in conclusion that the one nice thing about when I look at, um, I look at, sometimes I get jealous when I look at people looking really happy on Instagram or social media. And then I remember how I'm not happy when I post those photos that make me look happy. And then I feel no. a lot better about yeah. myself. I mean,
2: well, the, by definition, if you are happy and in the moment, and enjoying yourself right you don't want to document it you do not want to break off and and you know that in fact displaces you from your 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 happiness there's loads of research yeah evidence about that in fact i you know i know lots of people who've got really big twitter and instagram followings and I've got to tell you, they are made really fucking miserable by Twitter and Instagram. And uh, recently I bumped into someone who I know who's got a big Twitter following and uh, who was miserable as anything, right? Really depressed and unhappy. And I happened to look later, that actually had curiosity at this person's um, Twitter feed and it was all about how happy and great they were and all these pictures of them beaming and smiling, including posted just before or just after I had seen them, right? Right. Like these things like big social media followings, they're like, it's like a lottery prize that once you win it, it poisons you. Right. Yeah. It's a terrible because it, because exactly what we're saying about junk values. Right. Right. It's searching for happiness in all the wrong places.
1: Yeah. Well, on that note, we're going <laughs> to uh, this was very nourishing anti junk values. Uh, this was the antidote to junk food.
0: We're all going to take a walk uh, for 30 minutes yeah. with our cell phones turned off uh, here, left at the apartment. Yes.
1: Uh, but Great. also I want some donuts. And I appreciate
2: the irony in saying this after lambasting advertising, but my publishers tell me off if I don't say uh, anyone who wants any more information about where to get (laughs) the book or the audio book or to find out what a whole range of people have said about the book or to take a quiz to see how much they know about. um, Cows and depression and anxiety. If they go to www.thelostconnections.com they can also find out where to follow me where i do not pretend to be happy on social media right. and i had this weird experience recently in an interview where they said to me at the end like what's your twitter what's your facebook what's your instagram and then they were like what's your snapchat and i was like oh yeah i am a 39 year old man right the only 39 year old men on snapchat are certainly pedophiles right? yeah, <laughs> yeah the the be extremely so anyway you can see where you can follow me on all of them except snapchat because i'm in fact not a pedophile right where
0: well, you need to get on twitch
2: oh it's fucking hell
1: yeah that's
2: yeah, true the you saying that has made me physically twitch <laughs> yeah, that, like, exactly. <laughs> right,
1: like, perfect well thank you so much johan for talking uh, to us really
2: thanks katie thanks gabe yeah. i really enjoyed it yeah hooray. we have to come right. back on Take care. hooray hooray Yay.
1: thanks a lot thank right. you right. bye hooray. yeah that was great Thanks so much for listening to the Katie Halper Show. Don't forget to get tickets and come out to our live taping, which is May 10th at Littlefield. That's May 10th at 8 p.m. And I'll be co-hosting the show with the great podcast struggle session, Leslie Lee and Jack Allison. And our special guests will be Matt Taibbi, Jamie Peck from the Antifada podcast, and Jake Flores from the Pod Damn America podcast. Also, don't forget to check out Gabe Pacheco's Debut comedy album, Risky Behavior, which you can find on Amazon, iTunes, and Spotify. Also stand by for a bonus episode we are releasing with Street Fight Radio. The Katie Helper Show is edited by Ted Reedy. Our theme song is by the band Cordova.